All right. You want to go ahead and uh, read the thing? I'm going to go ahead and read the thing. Nice. Yes. Snow Canyon State Park in the south of Utah is known for its wildlife, a handful of scenic trails, and easy access from State Route 18. Today, casual travelers are drawn to the park for its sweeping vistas across several sandstone canyons and photo opportunities beside a number of unique rock formations. But in the 1960s and 70s, a string of Hollywood westerns were filmed here, taking advantage of Snow Canyon's dramatic red cliffs and bright blue skies as a backdrop for gunfights, stagecoach robberies, and cattle rustling. The peace and quiet of the canyon, however, is underwritten by a darker history. Only a few miles south, across the state line in Nevada, the United States military conducted a series of nuclear test explosions at the Nevada Proving Grounds, a patch of desert that was, when they were done, the most irradiated and lifeless place on the planet. These tests were done with the intention of learning more about the effects of nuclear explosions. For close to a decade, new and proposed nuclear devices were buried, parachuted, and simply dropped onto the bright red sands of the Proving Grounds, so scientists could see firsthand how organisms and structures responded to blasts, irradiation, and fallout. Shortly after the largest test series concluded, a massive Hollywood production, no less than a John Wayne historical epic, with Howard Hughes at the helm and a $6 million budget, the largest in RKO Studios' history, arrived at Snow Canyon to film the battle scenes. For six weeks, cast and crew struggled with scorching temperatures and constant wind to complete their filming, they then trucked some 60 tons of the red dust back to Hollywood to maintain continuity on their soundstage, bringing with it an uncertain amount of nuclear fallout. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the creation of the Genghis Khan film The Conqueror, and how the choice to film in scenic Snow Canyon may or may not have shortened the lives of its cast and crew. Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. I'm Ella, Executive Manager of Hollywood Productions here at Relative Disasters Corporation. And I'm her brother Greg, Chair of the Howard Hughes Film Studies Department here at Relative Disasters University. Such an interesting job. Congrats on your promotion. Thank you so much. I know nothing about this movie other than it's apparently terrible, like John Wayne playing Genghis Khan, so I'm excited to learn here. It's worse than you think and in a different way than you think, so Excellent. I'm excited to uh, <laughs> get into this. I know you're a little bit of a film buff. A little bit, maybe. Um, and I'm surprised you haven't seen this, because it is a classic. Uh, define classic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be taking a look at the undeniably awful... <laughs> 1956 movie The Conqueror, which was a, well, it actually did pretty well at the box office. It was a critical failure. Okay. Um, and potentially the cause of several premature deaths among the cast and crew due to filming way too close to the Nevada Proving Grounds just after the conclusion of a long series of A-bomb tests. Oh, okay. <laughs> we uh, should begin by citing our primary source for the episode, which is a book called Who Nuked the Duke? <laughs> Maybe the best book title of our entire podcast history. It might be. Um, it might and the be. author is John William Law. Cool. Okay. Um, I do want to say about that book, it's a, it's not super complicated. It's a fast read. It's got a lot of 1950s Hollywood gossip, yes. which I know you love. Spill the tea. Yeah. If the story interests you, please check that out. So I thought I could begin with our major players here. Okay. 
Um, and as the star and the major force in this movie's production, we have Marion Robert Morrison. Yep. Our buddy, a.k.a. John Wayne, a.k.a. The, the Duke. Duke. The Duke. I just want to get this out of the way at the beginning. Uh, <laughs> John Wayne was not a good... Okay. He was, he was kind of a terrible dude. Um, John Wayne was... He, Not a great he, human. He's been on record <clears throat> we could, as we could say that. Yeah, he's been on record as being pretty, uh, pretty racist, and not just for the time. <laughs> yeah, he took it. He took it. He a took few, it a little uh, bit further. Level. Yep. Yeah, he you went know, above and beyond with his. Uh, we all, we all have that one like old relative, and, and they're like, oh, "I don't like this particular group," and you're like, "Yes, but Nana grew up in a weird time, or whatever." And then, nope, not this dude. This dude was like. Nope, round them all up and shoot them, please. He uh, he just took it to the next level. He really dug in. Um, he was a huge fan, actually, of the House on American Activities Committee. Yep. So he Good was Joe McCarthy. an actual real-life friend of Joe McCarthy. Uh, I, I don't picture Joe McCarthy with uh, any friends. No, um, no. But John Wayne was in his quarter. Gross. Uh, he was also a big fan of the war in Vietnam, super conservative politically. Which doesn't make him a bad person. But Definitely not. But his actions reflecting from that. Uh, but if you want to read more about his views, please check out his 1971 interview with Playboy magazine, which yeah. recently resurfaced. There's a lot behind his kind of family, family-friendly family image, yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's too much and, frankly, too depressing to get into here. He had a, uh, he had a big tough guy image. And as... Well, he was a sweet tough guy. Yeah, he was supposed to. Yeah, if you've, ever seen, if you've ever seen the film The Quiet Man, he plays this... And thank goodness he doesn't even really try an Irish accent. Um, but he plays a dude who moves to a small town in Ireland and, and he gets picked on by the local bullies and refuses to fight them because he's, you know, he's a gentle soul. Aww. And that was not John Wayne the person. That was a very skillfully created John Wayne the persona, mm. but not not the guy himself. It really disappoints me that so many Hollywood actors are not like the characters that they play. <laughs> I, there's this great thing that's like, Hollywood is fake. These are all paid actors. And it just makes me very... <laughs> it's such a shock to the system. Anyway. All right. So in the early 1950s, John Wayne was a huge movie star. He's yep. possibly yep. He's possibly the most bankable star in the American film industry. And he has a yep. lot of pull with the studio. Yep. Uh, so in 1954, he is in someone's office. He happens to pick up the script for a movie about Genghis Khan. For some reason, he thinks to himself... I should play Genghis Khan! He's, like, trying to broaden his range. Sure. Uh, we know from The Quiet Man that he can uh, be a, he a can be non-American. More than, yep. Right? No. But he can be he can be more than just the, the, the cowboy slow draw, quick draw. Okay. This is his thought. Um... We're, we're going to find out whether or not that's actually true. But <laughs> that was his thinking behind. Uh, he reads this script. Yeah. And he really he really promotes it within the studio. Okay. Um, if you are, for some reason, unfamiliar with John Wayne's career, he's famous for playing characters in the Old West and kind of American war movies. Yeah. His, his thing is like gunslingers, sheriffs, ranchers. Yep. Um, if you look at his 170 movie career. Yep. He really does not play characters outside that specific group of, like, American manly men. Yeah. Um, and he's always going to be the star. In a John Wayne movie, he's always going to be, like, the slow-talking, big-shouldered kind of 
Emotion. Emotionless. Yep. Yeah. Yep. American archetype. Yep. And Genghis Khan, uh, if you've never heard of him. <laughs> was Mongolian, for starters. <laughs> He's the founder of the Mongol Empire. He's a warlord. And he lived a thousand years ago in the Gobi Desert. So this is a weird map. Okay. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen pictures of him in costume for this movie. I have. They're really bad. We'll get into it. We'll, we'll get, get into, into it. it. All right. Okay. So John Wayne tells the director and the producer who are already attached to the project that he loves it and he wants to do it. Now, this was Dick Powell, right? Yeah. So Dick Powell is this already established kind of voice and movie and TV actor. He's trying to transition into directing. Yes. He fresh off his first movie with RKO Studios. And Powell really wants to make this movie. Yeah. He is not sure that John Wayne is the right <laughs> star for it. And he's not. Like, Dick Powell is right to be husband. Yeah. He's yeah. not the person. Well, uh, you couldn't you couldn't actually have an Asian person play an Asian character, though. That's not done, you see. They were also considering Yul Brynner and okay. uh, Marlon Brando. Okay, so Yul Brynner because he did The King and I, <laughs> and Marlon Brando because he's Marlon Brando. Okay, I mean... Yeah, narrow scope. Let's call it what it was in the day. It was a very narrow casting scope. They're actors. They're acting. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, Dick Powell signs up John Wayne to do this. Okay. Because with John Wayne attached, he, he can has get the movie absolutely made. right. No yeah. problem getting RKO to fund it. And yep. they fund it with the largest budget in the studio's history, $6 million. Which is a huge huge deal. So who's in charge of RKO at the moment? Howard Hughes! <laughs> and we love Howard Hughes. I mean, we don't love him. I mean, uh, yeah, love is, love is a strong word. We like a billionaire eccentric. We like the stories um, about jo about Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes is a lot of things over yeah. the course of his lifetime. Yeah, he was. He built a plane, yes. right? He's an aviator, he's an engineer, loves making things, mm -hmm. loves investing in things. Yep. Uh, owns a bunch of companies. Including RKO. But at this time, he's really into Hollywood. He wants to be a studio head, and yep. he's owned controlling shares in RKO for seven years so far. And so far, guess what? He's been a total disaster of a boss. That does not surprise me. The man was suffering from a lot of mental health issues. Right. And what looks to us now, from from our vantage point in yeah. 2021, we can look at what he does over the course of his lifetime and say, oh, he had probably severe OCD. Yeah. Um, and he's a detail person. He is completely eaten up by the details of movie production. Yeah. Uh, but like John Wayne, he is strongly anti-communist. Yep. And uh, over the years, he has also fired about three quarters of RKO staff for suspected communist leanings. Yeah. Gotta love those. Uh, he got he got in some legal trouble for that, didn't he? He's so rich that it's really unclear. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> if he ever had consequences for any of this. Fair enough. Um, but at RKO. Profits are way down, right? They're okay. running everything on a shoestring. He is being sued. It's not clear if anybody ever gets anything. Okay, got um, it, got it. But he really needs a hit. So he hears John Wayne and Genghis Khan. Green lights it all the way through. I mean, sure. The other nice thing about Howard Hughes is that he loves dating actresses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He is currently... I, you know, dating feels like the wrong word to use here. Yeah, it probably is. He's currently involved with... It's even just, that. Even that's a little weird. Friends? Friends Plus? Friend Plus, the new platform from Google. I don't know. Okay, he's uh, so he's currently, currently dating. Sure. 
Susan Hayward. Oh, gosh, that's right. Um, Susan Hayward is a redhead from New York. Yes. Howard Hughes decides that she is perfect to star as the female lead in his Genghis Khan movie, uh-huh. uh, playing a Tartar princess who is kidnapped by Genghis Khan and then falls in love with him after a lot of bloodshed. Uh-huh. <laughs> as redheads do. Yeah, you know, all, all the, uh, that, that, uh, the red-headed Mongolians of, of the northern steppe They're were the actually, worst kind, yeah. They were, they were a really, really the tough sexiest faction. sexiest and yep. the worst. Okay. Oh, man. Uh, this character does actually have a historical basis, but the real princess is, I think, a much better story. She's yeah. married to Genghis Khan and then kidnapped, and he rescues her after a lot of bloodshed. Yeah. The story they end up with is both more complicated, more ridiculous, and way more violent. Yeah. Uh, they outviolented the historical record, for sure. Well, and it's also, like, during a time when, you know, violence was... You know, a gunshot goes off and a guy goes, erg, and grabs his chest and pretends to fall over. This is like, no, nah, we're going to get some blood. We're going to we're going to spray people with red paint. And it, it's it's yeah, they went all out. They filmed this in uh, they filmed it in CinemaScope. I thought it was technically. Really? Yeah. But the color you can see. We'll get into this later on. Sure. But you can sure. see why they have such an obsession with this color palette. Yeah. Because it is really bright. Well, and if they're filming in such a bright environment, that actually makes a lot of sense. Wow, that's actually really cool. Okay. Yeah. I didn't I, know I that. I was interested to find that out. Cool. Um, so lots of fighting on horseback. Yeah. <laughs> lots of lots of stabbings, lots of torturing, lots of whipping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Poor Susan Hayward is put in a number of problematic sexual situations. Oh, jeez. And that's where we begin. Okay. So and now she's they going have... through a divorce right now, too, right? Oh, right. Yeah. So uh, Susan Hayward is has twins who are in their, gosh, their elementary school age. Okay. She's going through this nasty divorce from another actor. Yep. Uh, she's sleeping with Howard Hughes. It's it's a messy story. And and if you haven't heard of Susan Hayward, like she was a, a fairly big deal at the time. She, she was, was a not, legit actress. Yeah, she, she was really good. Cast the way John Wayne was. Oh, <laughs> That sounded mean, sorry. Uh, no, it's good. It's she good. had a lot of range, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no. Uh, she was actually a, a pretty respected and pretty, yeah. pretty accomplished actress. Okay. So now she's going to do this movie. So now she's going to play a Tartar princess. Okay. Um, and they have a script now. They have an all-star cast that gets even better when uh, Agnes Moorhead signs on as John Wayne's character's mother. Ah! She's like five older, five years older than he is. Yep. <laughs> Which always cracks me. I mean, Okay. And uh, the Mexican film star Pedro Armendariz goes under contract to play Genghis Khan's best friend and sidekick. Okay. We are becoming more international with our script, which is by the English screenwriter Oscar Millard, who also wrote Angel Face. Okay. Yeah, the Robert Mitchum movie. Yeah, yeah. So with all this talent in one place, the movie is approved by the studio. Howard Hughes loves it. Okay. And all the producers need now is to find a place to shoot the exterior shots. Yes, so they need a filming location. So they need to um, they need to get a desert that's near enough to Hollywood that they can film there, but not actually in Mongolia because you know you don't need to do that. You can tell like this whole production has the flavor of like we want to make an oriental epic. Yeah, 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 uh, with giant air quotes. Yeah, but we don't want anything overtly. 
<laughs> Giant it's air like, quotes, oriental. It's like going to Chuck E. Cheese's to learn about animal husbandry. Ooh. <laughs> like, it's like that it. level of fake. It's it. unbelievable. All right. All right, so Greg, let's uh, shift focus a little to Nye County, Nevada. Ooh, yes. Yeah. What a great place where at night it glows. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this poor... This poor patch of land. Okay. I know. Okay. Um, in uh, 1951, the U.S. military has just bought a nice little patch of desert to develop and research nuclear devices, as you do. Yep. Uh, particularly atomic nuclear bombs that includes warheads and missiles. Yeah. It's developed under the name Nevada Proving Grounds. Mm-hmm. These days, it's uh, run by the U.S. Department of Energy, and it's okay. called the Nevada National Security Site, N2S2. Ooh. Oh, I like that. N2S2. Like yeah. That's pretty good. So, uh, what you doing this weekend? Oh, oh heading out to N2S2. N2S2. What mm-hmm. are you doing? Yeah. Although it sounds a little bit like a Star Wars. Like you know, R2D2. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was one of the failed droids. We had R2D2, but right next to it was N2S2. <laughs> oh. Back to Nevada, Greg. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, the U.S. had this technology for all these nuclear weapons since the Manhattan Project yep. in the early 1940s. Yep. And, of course, they used them to kill a quarter million people in Japan in 1945 at the end of World War II. Yes. The bombs, I actually didn't know this, but the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were experimental. Yes. And both explosions left military scientists with lots of questions. Yeah, they didn't know that the blasts were going to be that big and that... Um, the, the after effects would be what they were. They just sort right. of knew they were going to make a big boom, and that's what they did. And they certainly did. Uh, so some of the questions they were trying to answer was, like, what happens when an explosion occurs underground? Okay. What happens to animals exposed to an atmospheric explosion? They oh. die. <laughs> yes, but they die in such an interesting way. No! No, thank you. And the animal research is, of course... The uh, most gruesome part of this. A lot of it is still classified, and it's supposed to inform, like, what happens to humans. Sure. So, it's just a little silence for all the poor jackrabbits they collected Uh, and forced to watch nuclear bombs going off. Okay. Yes. Uh, A lot of questions were about the fallout. So, like, how does the weather change nuclear fallout? Okay. How big can fallouts be? Uh, what if we made a bomb 10 times the size of the Hiroshima bomb? Uh, what would that fallout look like? Okay. These guys are so enthusiastic about building and dropping bombs that they detonate something like a thousand test devices over the 41 years oh the my active. Oh God. Yep. What? Yep. Wow. Okay. Now you are probably picturing some like super isolated spot hundreds of miles from the closest settlement. That's exactly what I'm picturing. But you would be wrong because the uh, Nevada oh no. Proving Grounds is 65 miles outside Las Vegas. What? Oh my god! Do your gambling in the morning. Yep, and then just go watch the watch the mushroom clouds. Mushroom clouds. Yep. Jeez. Um, it is 65 miles outside Las Vegas and 100 miles away from St. George in southern Utah. From both wow. those places, you can feel the seismic shock from a blast and see mushroom clouds. Uh huh. Unsettling. Yeah, a little bit. A little yeah. bit. A little bit. Jeez. Uh, for some reason, having to do with like the topography of the site, um, the prevailing weather patterns, okay. the fallout mostly affects people living north of the site. So even okay. though Las Vegas is closer, uh, the fallout really falls mostly on Utah? up towards Utah. Yeah. Okay. okay. And I have to tell you, there are some real horror stories about the ranchers and the livestock living out oh, there with geez. farmers reporting 
birth defects and sickness in their animals. Uh, the residents of St. George yeah. were developing cancer at a rate well above the national average. And certain cancers, especially leukemia and bone cancer, became 5 and 11 times higher, respectively, than the national average during the 60s and 70s. Jeez. So there were a couple of studies done in the 80s about this cancer cluster, and surprisingly, conclusions are mixed. Really? Yeah, because the Journal of American Medical Association publishes an article in 1984 that shows a clear link between the increase of leukemia and exposure to nuclear fallout. Okay. You're like, yes. Which makes sense. Radiation's right. really bad for you. We're nodding along. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and then the American Journal of Epidemiology published a Johns Hopkins study in 1987 that showed that the two counties closest to the Nevada Proving Ground did not see an increase in cancer deaths as compared huh. to the national average. So there's a lot of debate and a lot of room for debate even now about how much fallout that area received and exactly how it affected people living there. I'd also be interested to see not only the studies, but who funded the studies, because sometimes sometimes that, that leads to uh, gleaning some extra information. That's weird. Yeah, surprisingly, the National Society for Uranium Promotion published that one that said it wasn't too bad. <laughs> right, right. I don't see a link, though. The, uh, the American Nuclear Test Site. Friends of the American Nuclear Test Sites. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That's dark. Oh, uh, gross. All right. So, in 1955, there was this really intense series of 14 nuclear device test explosions that were conducted at the site. They were known as Operation Teapot, and yes. each explosion had a cute little name. Uh-huh. Uh, Very cute. We can't list them all here for you, but they're they're cute. You sure. can see them on the internet. Sure. Um, the aims of this test series were to establish military tactics uh, to improve... How ground forces respond on a battlefield that's been irradiated? Or just on a nuclear battlefield? Like, what's the... What's the takeaway? Okay, so the point of the operation was to improve the nuclear weapons, to improve the way they were delivered, okay, and to understand what a nuclear battlefield was going to look like. Oh, gross. Did they actually have people running around when they, they set these off? They had dummies. They had mannequins. Sure. Um, these are the tests you're thinking of where they built a little town and then yeah, yeah, dropped yeah. a bomb on it to see what would happen to the buildings. Awesome. Yeah, this is like Doomtown, Survival Town. Oh my um, god, those are the best names. <laughs> yeah, if you take a tour of N2S2... Wait, you can tour it? Oh yeah. Yep. Do they give you your own complimentary Geiger counter as you walk in? Yeah, you wear a badge. And it shows you how many reds you're picking up as you walk through. No, thank you, I'm good. Um, but you can actually go to... Doomtown, and uh, check out the buildings that were not destroyed in the blast. Wow. Isn't that cool? No, it's creepy as heck, but okay. Wow. Okay. So in 1955, uh, after Operation Teapot wraps up, yep. can we just take a moment and say that Operation Teapot is not the right name <laughs> for this? <laughs> well, they'd already used Operation Castle and Operation Wigwam. So I thought they continued the naming thing. You know, the next one could be like, you know, Operation Chalet or Operation Nice Cottage or something. But where's Teapot come Cupcake. in? Operation Smiles. Oh. <laughs> oh. Okay. No, 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 no. I've got it. This is the perfect one. Ready? Yep. Operation Sunshine. 
so dark. Doesn't that make you just angry and sad at the same time? <laughs> I'm actually itching all over my body right, right? now. Right? Oh, okay. what, a, what a rad concept. What a wonderful world we live in. Anyway. So in 1955, uh, the military was, you know, <laughs> they were doing this as part of classified military research. Sure. And when the production team, the location scouts mm-hmm. of The Conqueror, asked if they could use <laughs> oh, God. Snow Canyon to film some Genghis Khan scenes. Yep. They were like, sure, there's yeah. no danger there. They actually provided them with a Geiger counter. Did anyone know how to use the Geiger counter? No, it didn't come with training or personnel. It was just like, <laughs> oh, God. you know what? We You might see mushroom clouds. Uh, here's a Geiger counter just to make you feel better. That's, that's brilliant. There are production pictures of uh, June Allison and Susan Hayward posing with in with, evening wear with a uh, Geiger, with a Geiger counter. Yeah. It doesn't work and doesn't tell them that they're being irradiated. It's right all now. okay. It's all okay. The military said it was fine. Oh, God. Okay. Uh, they were absolutely fine with having the crew for this major big budget Hollywood movie mm-hmm. setting up shop in the canyons between the Proving Grounds and St. George. Okay. And the area the scouts chose for these major exterior shots of Genghis Khan battling and caravanning across the Gobi Desert mm-hmm. is called, as we mentioned in the intro, Snow Canyon. Yep. Stunning, stunningly beautiful place. Sure. Highly recommend you go there and have your picture taken. While carrying a Geiger counter. Right. And the whole thing is going to look amazing in CinemaScope. Yes. That's what the location scouts were really excited about. CinemaScope was a really, really cool... um, We're not going to take a sidebar on it now, but CinemaScope was a really cool uh, innovation in film around this time, early 1950s to mid-1950s. A lot of the big epics were filmed in CinemaScope because it allowed colors to pop differently than stuff that was done in Technicolor. So... Uh, if you want to learn about nerdy CinemaScope stuff, that's why we have the internet. Thank you for dorking out on my episodes. I could do I could do a whole sidebar in CinemaScope, but I'm not gonna because it's it, CinemaScope is not a disaster. No, it's really cool. And the big difference that I saw when I watched a few clips of the the Conqueror is that you can really see. Okay, the actors are wearing a lot of makeup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the background. You see bright blue sky, mm-hmm. this kind of amazing red rock formation. And then it just, it speaks really differently on the film than technically. Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's warmer and sharper, yep. if that makes sense. Yep. And it's easier to transfer to HD, interestingly Ooh, enough. Yeah. Good to know. Yeah. All right. Uh, side note, a bunch of movies were filmed out there after the Proving Grounds slow down their explosions in the late 50s. Butch okay. Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was filmed out there. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Number of B movies you will yep. not have seen. Um, I may have. <laughs> and the Flintstones. <laughs> oh God! The, yes. Okay. The one with John Goodman. Yeah, John Goodman and Rosie O'Donnell. I remember anyway. that one. And uh, and then they made a sequel to it that had um, Stephen Baldwin in it. Ooh! Oh, that sounds wonderful. I think it, the sequel was called I think Viva Rock Vegas. Oh God! <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway. That will be another episode. It's a gorgeous location, though. Like, that area is really pretty. Famously pretty. Yep. Okay. And it's a state park now, right? Yeah. You can go there and hike. I don't know what the half-life of any of this stuff is right now, but... Just don't drink the water. Don't lick the sand. Don't lick the sand. Yeah. Don't lick the sand. We don't encourage sand licking. I mean, just in general, we don't (laughs) encourage sand licking. Yeah, I was just thinking that. You know, we've raised children, and we have taught them not to lick sand. 
but yeah okay okay so the shoot begins in june of 1954 okay june allison who's married to dick powell and joins him on location for a little vacation yeah writes about it in her memoirs i'm going to quote here okay excellent the day the stars began to arrive on location was full of bad omens so i'm quoting june allison now okay the wind seemed to be trying to tell them something and driving them away the chartered plane carrying richard John Wayne, Susan Hayward, and a dozen other top actors almost crashed, and they landed only to find that their tent was in shambles, destroyed by a 55-mile-per-hour gale. End quote. Wow. The weather that summer is just awful. Sure. It's super, super hot. There's a high of 120 degrees one day. Jeez. The extras are getting burned from their armor because they're in full suits of... That makes sense, yeah. Huge air quotes, Mongolian armor. Sure. They're, they're wearing metal on their bodies, which is getting superheated by the they're sun. They're wearing wigs. They're covered in makeup. They're oh, covered God. in pancake makeup. Um, John Wayne has like two hours of makeup every morning. Well, he's got to look pretty. And not only pretty, he's got to look, <clears throat> air quotes, oriental. They, I've seen pictures from it, and I believe they literally like taped his eyes. They did. They taped all the major actors' eyes. And wow. they also uh, wow. did a lot of pancake makeup to make them look browner. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just, it's just... It's problematic. It's not the way that we would do that today. today. Sure. Um, uh, I hope, but... But still. Um, there's also a lot of wind. Sure. And because it's so dusty and dry around the canyon, mm-hmm. the crew has to wear a surgical mask to keep the dust out of their noses and mouths. Oof. And the actors who don't have the option to wear masks because they're in front of the camera, they complain constantly about getting it in their eyes and breathing it in. It's almost as if masks are very good barriers for getting stuff into your mouth and nose. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I mean, the the nuclear fallout is... That's a cool historical note. Yeah. Uh, So it's almost impossible to keep hair and makeup fresh. And Oh, God, yeah. Susan Hayward, in particular... You gotta remember, Susan Hayward is going through it at this time. Oh, sure, yeah. Uh, she's very, very picky about how she looks. She insists on watching the work from each day and asking yep. for reshoots if she doesn't look completely fresh and cool. Oh, she's geez. dressed in white throughout the movie. Oh my god, that's a nightmare. She's dressed in these white, like, slip gowns. Oh no. Um, oh no. That's wolf. She wants to appear bright white and completely fresh, uh, every hair in place. Lipstick God. perfect, pearl earrings in place. Well, they're dealing with 120 degree heat and 55 mile an hour winds. And this dust that's getting everywhere. And this yeah. dust, yeah. Uh, she almost gets a lighting guy fired at one point because she thinks her nose looks shiny in one scene. That's that's the level of uh, wow nitpicking we're dealing with. Okay, she's going through a divorce. Divorce is hard. But still, wow. Yeah. Uh, John Wayne, though, sounds like a good sport, especially considering how much makeup he has to sit through to look like a... Quote, unquote, Mongol. <laughs> Mongol yep. warrior. Yep. He has this long, wispy... I heard it was a fake mustache. Do you I, think he grew that? I, I I think it's fake. Yeah. It's just in it's all the long. pictures, and it's weird looking. Yep. Uh, I would believe that it's real human hair. Yeah, he um, just, just found some random dude and just <laughs> shaved him every morning. And, of course, he's in full-on, like, kabuki-style contouring. He has oh, his eyes taped. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he's got... You know, cheekbones that he doesn't actually have. I mean, just to be clear, nobody in this film looks Mongolian. And if you think of John Wayne's face, he's just yep. got that big 
potatoy American Yeah, American face. face. Yeah, exactly. That, that you... He looks exactly the same, only with his eyes taped. So for costumes, we're seeing a lot of, like, animal skins, uh, a lot of leather, a lot of bikini tops. Of course. And uh, nylon veils. There's a big dance scene with uh, <laughs> a lot of shimmy shimmy and some sequins. What? Okay. That's it's, weird. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun to look. That's look weird. At. Uh, tons of jewelry on. Lots of random gilding. Okay. And throughout, Susan Hayward has these slinky white dresses, heels... Uh, like actual platform strappy heels. Oh my god! In a scene where John Wayne picks her up and runs her off stage, you can see her feet for a minute, and I went, "Oh god!" Jeez, they're dance shoes. Wow. Uh, okay. And uh, of course, her hair is perfect in every scene. It's this magnificent roller set coif with teasing and hairspray to the heavens. It's, okay. It's a look. Um, yeah, it it's certainly a look. is a look. The plot of the movie. Yes, let's get into the plot here. Because <laughs> you know they were trying to tell a story. Yeah. The plot of the movie revolves around Genghis Khan's capture and revolt. Mm-hmm. And uh, his love life. If sure. If you can call it love life, it's pretty rapey for a love life. Um, uh, there's a lot of battles on horseback. Sure. There's a lot of kidnapping. Yep. Huge air quotes. Yep. A lot of wide shots of uh, people on horseback marching along the cliffs and canyons. You kind of get a sense of how dusty things are during the battle scenes. Sure. There's just hundreds of horses running around. Okay. Guys falling off. John Wayne is like galloping around, slashing his sword and delivering incredibly bad dialogue at the top of his lungs in an American Western accent. So in his usual John Wayne voice. That's pretty great, actually. That's... Okay, and you have to picture all of this is happening in like a haze of bright red dust just swirling oh, sure. over everything. I, I, I feel badly for the camera operators because the kind of cameras yeah. that they were using back then, those things would be getting choked with dust. It's a huge problem. It, it gets into the cameras, the sound equipment, the lighting equipment, basically everything that needs to be kept clean. And they're eating on set. Oh, sure. So yeah. the craft services tent, the sand gets oh, in there, too. Oh, man. The crew jokes about everything they eat being sprinkled with, quote-unquote, Utah chili powder, which is just wow. unbearably sad and gross. Yep. The dust is just an absolute plague. Okay. But when these grueling exterior shots are all in the can, Dick Powell has a brilliant idea. Yeah. He decides he's going to take a little bit for the road. <laughs> And he hires dump trucks to carry 60 tons of the red dust, which, uh-huh. remember... Is radioactive. Is quite possibly full of nuclear fallout, uh, back to L.A. so they can spread it around on their soundstage for continuity. With you the gotta, you gotta keep there. continuity. You gotta keep continuity. That's, that's a big deal. I, I happened to come across uh, an article that said that they hired people off the street to come in and spread it around on the soundstage. Sure. Like gardeners, day yeah. laborers. Oh God. Yeah. Sure. Why not? Okay. So in addition to the six weeks of living with this horrible radioactive dust, yep. the crew and the actors are still breathing it in for months longer as they finish up their movie on the soundstage. Yeah. Yep. And in the early winter of 1955, principal photography finally concludes. Well. Did you forget about Howard Hughes? I did not. He but was, uh, earlier in the episode. Yeah, I did not. This is around the time when he quits RKO and sells his controlling interest for a huge profit. And part of the deal is that he buys all the rights to his two favorite projects. Okay. Now, that's a movie called Jet Pilot, which is a Cold War epic starring John Wayne and Janet Leigh. Oh. 
And his second choice is the Conqueror. The Conqueror. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He decides he's going to market the Conqueror worldwide because it's oh, a global geez. historical effort from his own pocket. Okay. Okay. So he holds a premiere for the Conqueror in January of 1956. He releases it globally a couple weeks later. It doesn't actually do too badly at the box office. Okay. It earns okay. $12 million on its uh, $6 million budget. Wow. Uh, but okay. since Howard Hughes paid to market and promote it worldwide with all these fancy premieres, he doesn't actually make that much money from the release. That's all right. I mean, he gets the satisfaction of having, you know, a, a big, big movie. It's a fun group project. You know. He met lots of fun people. I can imagine, however, that the people who watched the movie probably only saw it once. People did want to see it because yep. it's John Wayne doing something that John Wayne doesn't usually do. And yep. there are all these like sexy dance scenes and sure. uh, Susan Hayward's very pretty. People were going to see it, but critics were just eviscerating it at the same time. And to, to make to make the this point, like, so just to explain how big a deal this was, um, John Wayne... John Wayne movies, even if they were formulaic and he's playing the same guy in every single film, critics didn't really tear him to pieces. No. Uh, and certainly not his films to pieces. He's an American archetype. He's, he, exactly. So for them to be like, yeah, this movie sucks is a huge deal. I think it's an even bigger deal to say this movie sucks because John Wayne is trying to play Genghis Khan. Uh, yeah, I, that's that's the beginning of, of the start <laughs> of what's wrong with this film, yes. We also have the dialogue, which is yeah at best clunky, at worst yeah. completely incomprehensible. It's like mystery science theater level nonsense. Love it. And it's delivered in this like insane... Drawl. Drawl. Yep, yep, the John Wayne drawl. Yep. So famous for. Uh, uh, let me quote to you from the Times. Their movie critic had a good time at the movie. This is the, the Times? Yes. The New York Times? After the premiere. Okay. Uh, quote, John Wayne's portrayal of Genghis is elementary. Okay. Although his appearance in wispy mustaches and Mongol makeup is a mite startling at first, he is soon recognizable. Once in the saddle, he is the rough-riding John Wayne of yore. It's just that he is constantly being unhorsed by such lines as, quote, you are beautiful in your wrath, end quote. Okie doke. Okie doke. If you can take a moment and picture to yourself, John Wayne. On Delivering horseback, that line, yeah. You're beautiful in your wrath. I can't, yeah, I can't do a John Wayne either. Uh, okay. <sighs> so although it did well, Howard Hughes took the criticism personally and he found it very offensive. Sure, because it's hard when you've got OCD and you pour a whole bunch of stuff into a project. And it was his special pet project. Exactly. That's really hard. Yeah. I, I get it. He's not the kind of dude who took criticism well to begin with. <laughs> no. No, that's one of the Yeah. One of the main things about Howard Hughes. Yep. After that year, Howard Hughes bought up all the prints of the movie and he just sat on them so it couldn't be shown again, except in his own house, where at one point he reportedly watched it once a day. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. In the sixties he gets into the casino business. Okay. And at one point, I did not know this, but he owned so much of the casino business. Okay. He was the single largest employer on the Las Vegas Strip. Wow. And by now he knows a little bit more about the tests going on at the Nevada Proving Grounds, and he actually ends up using a lot of his money and influence to protest the ongoing test bombings. Hmm. So at one point he offers President Lyndon Johnson a million dollars 
Okay. To stop the testing program, and Johnson turns huh. him down. Huh. Which, I mean... <laughs> Yeah. If someone walks up to you as the president and says, here's a million dollars, do what I want. Yeah. It's not... I would hope it would get turned down, or at least, like, given to a subcommittee. Weird. Maybe. Okay. And then he dies. Yeah, in 1976, he dies of kidney failure aboard a flight from Acapulco to Houston. He was very, very sick yeah. before he died. Yeah. But he never developed cancer. Okay. Um, it's also, he was not on the ground at Snow Canyon. No. No. Uh, so... There's not really, we're not looking for a link there. Right, right, right. Um, but he was certainly aware of the consequences of choosing to film in Snow Canyon in St. George. Okay. So 220 cast members and crew worked on location during the Utah filming of The Conqueror. Yep. And 91 people developed cancer wow. between the end of filming and 1984, with 46 people dying from it. So it's basically half of the people working there got cancer, and basically half a of quarter those. of the people working there died from it. Right. That includes a number of the key players. Yep. Dick so Powell. Dick Powell dies of lung cancer in 1963. Yep. In 1964, John Wayne is diagnosed with lung cancer, which he survives. Okay. That same year, co-star Pedro Armendariz tragically completes suicide after learning that his neck cancer is terminal. Okay. Susan Hayward dies yep. of brain cancer in 1973 at the age of 57, uh, with Angus Moorhead dying the following year of uterine cancer. Okay. And uh, John Wayne, who, like Powell, was a chain smoker, died of stomach cancer in 1979. Again, he had already survived lung cancer back in 1964. Jeez. So statistically, it is possible that the radioactive dust that all these people breathed in for six weeks in the Utah desert had nothing to do with their cancer diagnoses and subsequent deaths. Okay. And some figures show that the cancer mortality rate for the cast and crew of The Conqueror compares pretty evenly to the average cancer rate of Americans their age, especially sure. considering their lifestyles, Sure. Uh, which included lots of smoking, yep. lots and lots of drinking, yep. and red meat. Sure. Uh, but it's a troubling coincidence, especially when you consider the ages yeah. at which many of these people were diagnosed. Some are, you know, decades younger than the average age yeah. that you would expect to be diagnosed with something like uterine cancer or neck cancer. Sure. Uh, of course, so six weeks filming in Snow Canyon does not compare to a lifetime spent drinking tap water in St. George, Utah. Yeah. In the 1980s, military researchers concluded yeah. that nuclear fallout posed significant threats to human health. Wow, that's, that's, I, I'm astonished. Are you astonished? I'm astonished. All they had to do was set off a thousand test devices and then see what happened to the rabbits in the area. Yep. But now they know yeah. by the 80s. Hey, that's good. It's all um, learning. It's all learning. It's a teachable moment. <laughs> God. In the 80s, they also ramped down their testing programs at the proving grounds. Wait, they were um, still testing in the 80s? They were doing small scale. They got the big stuff out of the way in the 50s. Okay. They were doing these small-scale kind of underground experiments. I know it doesn't sound okay. much better, but... Wow. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, they had also learned all they were going to learn from setting off... One would think! <laughs> there has to be an end to that, to that kind Jeez. of uh, body of knowledge. Okay, so after they ramped down their testing programs... Yep. There was almost immediately a bill providing compensation to the residents who were affected by cancers linked to the fallout. Okay. And that was passed in 1990. Okay. In 1992, following some pretty serious protest movements, 
Okay. The government announced that testing was completed, completely over. Okay. Right. And today the area is used by the Department of Energy for longevity testing. Oh, fun. So that includes seeing how American nuclear weapons are aging. Yep. Right? And then the ever-wonderful topic of radioactive waste management. Yay. You can also, as we said, take a tour. Uh, I would take a tour. Really? Yeah, I would. You take this tour? You won't go you won't go look at a shark, but you'll take this tour. <laughs> First of all, I'm done having children. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair Second enough. of all, I'm really curious about what it looks like. Can you imagine the most irradiated Just just watch the conqueror and you'll see it right there. No. Oh, you want to see the actual testing ground? Yeah. Ooh. I imagine it looks like a lot of sand. Yeah, but it's like irradiated sand, you know? I wanna see if it's different. I'm good. I'm good, thank you. Uh, one final note. When Howard Hughes died, he left a very messy will. Oh, God, yes, he did. As rich people often do. Oh, my God. And it took a while to untangle and probate. Okay. In 1979, Universal was finally able to buy the rights to the Conqueror. Okay. And they didn't do much with it because yeah. everybody who had been going to see it had seen it at that point. It's more of a historical curiosity at this it's point. It's not a beloved family classic. No. It's not something you would throw at your... Oof. I don't know. Your party? No. No? No. On your cruise ship, maybe? <laughs> um, you would definitely want not want to show it to your history class if mm -mm. you're teaching. Nope. 10th <laughs> grade AP history. Um, in 2012, it was released on DVD. Oh. So there are bits and pieces of it available on YouTube, including the trailer. Oh, okay. Which is like epic, historic. Barf. Uh, no, it's very good. Sure. Um, and that is the weird, sad tale of the Conqueror and its nuclear fallout. I feel bad for Susan Hayward, and I feel bad for a lot of the crew members. Like that's the crew members really had no option. Exactly, they were working, and they were working for they. They, they were, were not. They had no input. On exactly. Their... They were working for their jobs. Basically, right. it's it's one of those things where it's like if you're the camera operator, well. Congratulations, you're shipping up to Utah for six weeks. They also hired tons of locals to go out there with them. Sure. Yeah, to be extras and to ride around on horseback and also to do things like crew services and whatever else you need local help for. It's not great, man. It's not a good look. Uh, we don't love it. And the movie itself isn't a great look. We don't love it. That's the thing. I kept going back and forth when I was researching this episode. Yep. Like, would it be okay if The Conqueror was a really good movie? No, it wouldn't be okay, but it would at least be better. Like, if people sacrificed so much. Sure. Like, if we find out in 40 years that when they filmed The Lord of the Rings, like, everybody in there got star cancer or something. We'd be like, well, but that was a really, really good movie. Again, this you're is, a huge dork. I this is not that. like... <laughs> okay, what were you thinking of? Jaws. Oh, of course, Jaws. The American classic. Sure. A genuinely good movie. Like, if, if every time they got in the water with the shark, it electrocuted somebody. But the movie's really good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think as Americans, uh, we have this kind of symbiotic relationship with our entertainment. Ooh, that is an uh, excellent, excellent... Uh, but sometimes our entertainment Americans. bites us back, you know? Yeah, that's this true. Is, uh, that's true. All right. All right. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. 
If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly, why not use our Instagram at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, uh, we are going to take a, a weird trip with this one. Uh, we're going to talk about an election, a contested election, where the losing party refused to concede and, in fact, tried to violently overthrow the uh, legitimately elected party. That's right, folks. We're going to 1909 and Zion, Illinois, which is just a weird, crazy piece of Americana that fortunately never happened again. Yeah, thank goodness we've had uh, completely normal elections since then. It is, at all levels. It is just a bizarre, bizarre... Like, you've got cults, you've got violence, Ooh. you've got... Uh, a little bit of faith healing, right? Oh, God. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I cannot wait to talk to you about that.